This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. My my question today on Facebook and Twitter is how will Russian hacking or U.S. election affect Trump and Putin bromance? Uh, to which I've got uh, a replies from India and a Jeff chilling that it's going uh, this far with no evidence presented. Just saying something is now grounds for action that can lead to war. All right, that's one. The second one is. Uh, the alleged hacking, no proof provided, just suspicions, says Elizabeth. Alex says, how come you don't run a story like this and then runs a link to some wacky right wing Do you want to hear the headline, Scott? No, I don't want to okay. hear the headline. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but both the Democrats and the Republicans, including Trump, have already acknowledged that there's been Russian hacking. Is that not the case? Am I missing something here? So unless these people are communists, I'm not sure whose side they're on. Because even the Republicans and Trump and the Democrats have already acknowledged that the Russians have hacked them. So... I I don't know what you people are talking about. I really don't. Because both sides of this discussion have already admitted it. What they have a hard time agreeing to was whether it favored one or the other candidate. That's the only confusion I believe there is in this. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. So, uh, you know, let's bring in right away Simon uh, Polymar. Simon is the Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation and is with us now. Hello, Simon. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. So um, here's what I'm dealing with here, Simon. Um, uh, On my Facebook and and Twitter and the question I kind of threw out today, how will Russian hacking of U.S. election affect Trump-Putin bromance? Uh, kind of a tongue-in-cheek funny thing. Here's the response I get. Indiana Jeff writes, chilling that this is going uh, chilling that this is going this far with no evidence presented, just saying something is now grounds for actions that can lead to war. Elizabeth writes, the alleged hacking, no proof provided, just suspicious. Suspicions, rather. Alex writes, how come you don't run a story like this and then uh, post a link to... Uh, a very right-wing website. Can you clarify what everybody knows and confirm? Is there confirmation of this hacking? Are both sides in agreement with this? Clarify this for us, Simon. Sure, sure. And that's uh, I think it's, I think that's a really good question given the the current climate out there, where I think uh, people are distrustful of news media, distrustful of government, and whatnot. But it's and so it's a very good question. Right now, we have very good evidence that uh, a number of American uh, computer servers and networks email accounts were hacked during the last presidential election campaign. This includes the Democratic National Committee's uh, email servers, uh, the the chairman of Hillary Clinton's campaign, John Podesta, his personal email account, uh, was hacked in what appears to be a separate attack. Uh, there's some evidence that the Republican National Committee uh, servers were hacked, and then even the uh, fed- the U.S. Federal elect- Election Committee servers were hacked. There's really no debate that these computer systems were penetrated by people who weren't supposed to be there, and uh, that they uh, then took information, copied emails, etc., from there, that's where you know the WikiLeaks emails came from. Nobody's denying their authenticity, and there's really little to no debate about whether or not they were compromised. The evidence also tends to strongly point to uh, Russian either uh, military intelligence units doing it or subcontractors for them, because when, uh, for example, a military you know, cyber warfare unit, like many countries have now, enters a computer system. They have to use various pieces of software and methods to do so, and it's often almost impossible to leave 
no evidence that you were there. And all of the evidence, the forensic evidence that was left, is very consistent with some well-known Russian uh, surrogates and Russian units. And on top of that, there's nobody in the United States right now, at least in the United States government, except for Donald Trump and his inner circle, who is denying that it was the Russian government that appears to have at least sponsored these attacks. Uh, many people in the Republican Party who have seen the classified evidence all seem to be in public agreement, along with the Democrats. There's a consensus in the United States, except for one important person, really, and that is President-elect Trump. That being said, Simon, uh, Trump tweeted, are we talking about the same cyber attack where it was revealed that the head of the DNC illegally gave Hillary the questions to the debate? So clearly he's acknowledging this. He's been very, uh, very cagey in terms of when he's used this to advantage. Uh, advantage. I mean, I think uh, you'll recall and your listeners will recall during the election, he either jokingly or seriously, I mean, depends who you ask, they'll give you a different answer, implored for that Russia continue to uh, hack Clinton's emails. His surrogates have used some of the, you know, the less seemly uh, emails, you know, to bash Clinton on the campaign trail. So he's willing to use the data that that was extracted from these servers. He's just not willing to admit either that it was a uh, Russian government or a, uh, a contractor for the Russian government that did it, and he's not willing to admit that perhaps it has worked in his favor, because it did reveal some things that, frankly, I don't think were too shocking to anybody in the business, but they were certainly not the sort of things that uh, politicians like to advertise. From what my understanding is, the confusion is not whether it was hacked or that they were hacked or not by the Russians. The confusion is whether it actually affected the outcome of the election or not. Is that that's, correct? I think, I think that's the, the most debatable point, for sure. Uh, there was, I mean, for example, there was some confusion about the uh, efforts to recount the votes in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, for example, where it was where some media... Uh, outlets pointed out that there were some concerns that perhaps the electronic voting machines in these states were compromised. Now, no one has actually argued that uh, that Russian military intelligence, for example, compromised voting machines and actually literally uh, tweaked the vote numbers in favor of one candidate or another. But there are these vote machines, they're known to have vulnerabilities, they run on software, and when there was this uh, when American intelligence came to the conclusion that, look, Russian uh, government, Russian actors have been interfering in this election, trying to influence it, or at least trying to discredit it. it it's uh, prudent and careful to at least double-check that all the machines are, you know, ship-shape and working properly. That then gets turned into an allegation that, oh, Russia, in fact, hacked the machines and gave votes to Trump. I mean, nobody made that allegation, but in the current climate where um, this debate about to what extent Russian actions influence elections, things have gotten very bitter, very polarized, and very partisan, and people are willing to make that jump. But so far, it looks, you know, it's hard to say somebody voted for Trump because of what was revealed in the Clinton emails, for example. Uh and that's really the point of debate. I mean, nobody is actually saying that uh, Trump's victory was not legal and legitimate. But that being said, that doesn't mean that the United States government should turn a blind eye to foreign efforts to interfere in the electoral process. So where does this leave uh, Trump's bromance with Putin? I mean, where does it leave that relationship? Uh, and especially since he brought in the guy from Exxon, who's good buddies with him, too. Yeah, and that's an interesting question, because right now what we're seeing is we're seeing some battle lines being drawn down in Washington from um, Prominent Republicans, John McCain, uh, Senate Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, have uh, essentially backed President Obama's call for a full congressional inquiry into the extent of Russian efforts to uh, 
influence the election? How far did Russian intelligence efforts go? Was it did it go beyond simply hacking? Um, and they seem to be willing to butt heads with the president elect on this issue. So I don't anticipate that this uh, this story is going to change Donald Trump's views on Russia, or more specifically on Vladimir Putin. I mean, he's expressed admiration for Putin for some time, uh, for for the, for the Russian government for a uh, for years now, long before he had political ambitions. So Trump may still continue to try, you know, another reset with Russia. To what end? To what goal? I think that's still unclear. What what uh, Donald Trump hopes to get out of improving relations with Russia, though he clearly seems to admire the Russian president. However, if uh, the U.S. Congress does buck the president on this issue and and uh, conduct a full and thorough uh, inquiry into the extent of Russian efforts, uh, Donald Trump might find himself receiving pressure from Vladimir Putin, if indeed you know Trump wants a better relationship with Russia, to try to tamp down on Congress. And this is a Congress that, you know, right after the election looked like it might fall in line with the new president-elect, but in recent weeks has really shown hints that it might be a fairly independent Congress that is willing to challenge the president. And that could make things uh, difficult for uh, for President Trump and for Secretary Tillerson. Uh, again, it wasn't that long ago Trump was boasting about having everything and be able to, being able to whip things through, but clearly this this is an issue that's not going to go away. I mean, uh, with Obama vow, uh, vowing to retaliate, doesn't I mean, does Trump's decision on this is is crucial, is critical, is it not? Yeah, in and, many and ways. really, and really, has he given any formal reaction to this? I mean, other than his tweets and what have you, I mean, what's his position on this? Well, I think that what we have to start anticipating that that Donald Trump's method of giving his official thoughts on issues might be through tweets or off the cuff remarks to uh, to media. Um, he seems to like to fly so far by the seat of his pants. I mean, what we've seen from Donald Trump on this issue specifically is that he he fully rejects the notion that Russia had anything to do with this. He, he's uh, essentially throwing the CIA under the bus by, uh, you know, by claiming it, this is a simply manufactured story created by Democrats to benefit Democrats, that the CIA, he invokes the intelligence failures of uh, the second Iraq war, which were not solely intelligence failures, but also political failures, decisions made in the White House on how to interpret evidence that the CIA presented. He's, he's thrown on the bus and said, well, they couldn't get Saddam Hussein right. They can't get this right. They're useless. I don't need to see uh, daily intelligence briefings, for example, because there's nothing useful in them. He's essentially told the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency, and the other dozen U.S. intelligence agencies to essentially take a hike. If you're going to push this line, I don't have any need for you. I will, you know, cut intelligence directors out of the decision-making process. Um, How can he move, how can he move forward like this? How can he run the country this way? It's not a dictatorship. It'll be remarkably difficult. It will be remarkably difficult. He will get, how will he get anything done despite having support at all different levels? I mean, it's, it's just going to be a log jam, isn't it? Well, that's the thing. We don't know if he has that support yet. And uh, as, as I mentioned before, right after the election, Republicans were feeling quite triumphant. You know, they'd taken the House, taken the Senate, taken the presidency. Things were looking up and up. It looked like uh, Republicans had criticized and were going to be able to bury the hatchet and work with him. And now it's really becoming clear that I think some of them won't. Some of them are not going to simply uh, turn over and uh, and carry water for Vladimir Putin's government and do whatever Vladimir Putin wants. Uh, this is, of course, the, the party of Reagan still, and it's going to be difficult for some Republicans to swallow that line. And when it comes to intelligence briefings, you know, should America be subjected to a terrorist attack under Mr. Trump's watch, and it, and it comes out that he hadn't been taking intelligence briefings, a lot of blame is going to fall right on his lap in the White House. So I think he will find very quickly that it will be easier to 
you know, work with the uh, intelligence agencies who are all quite professional and, you know, while they don't probably enjoy the sort of attention they've been getting in the last week over this Russia issue, aren't going to take the president's criticisms too personally. This has happened before. They've been uh, politicized. Trump said to work with him, but he has to find a way to work with them. Uh, Trump said or, or asked why the White House didn't do something when they found out about this uh, hacking. Well, Barack Obama, I mean, one of the more serious critiques of uh, Barack Obama's foreign policy is that perhaps he has been too hesitant on a number of files and issues. And, uh, and President Obama waiting, collecting facts, and acting sometimes, you know, when he's ready, mm-hmm. he would say, and his uh, cr- critics would say, acting too late is, I think, more or less part of his his style approaching foreign policy. So in that regard, it's not too surprising. Uh, President Obama does not has not governed in an impulsive fashion for the last eight years, and so it's not surprising that he uh, would wait on this issue. But now that uh, the window is closing, he has around you know forty days, thirty five to forty days to act on this. Uh, this is the time where we will see something happened, but I think it was probably a matter of his own governing style, like I said, and also the desire to not do something during an election campaign and and then take on the appearance of interfering directly in the campaign by using the machinery of government to uh, support one candidate or another. Simon Palomar has been with us, Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. I'm Plug Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, there's been no shortage of people lining up to discuss Ontario's soaring electricity rates and what can be done to somehow correct all of this. Uh, Yesterday, the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce made a call out on the provincial government to take steps to address the issue of affordable electricity and energy prices in Ontario and have even come up with a little idea of their own. Uh, To talk about all of this, Husefa Saeed is with us, policy and research analyst with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce and is in studio with us now. Husefa, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having us. I think the first thing that, uh, that, that gets my attention in all of this uh, Huseva, is the fact that the chamber is even weighing in on this. Why is the chamber weighing in on something like this? Absolutely. So uh, I think for the longest time, um, for businesses and, and the chamber had accepted um, electricity and energy as just the cost of doing business. Like you have to pay it every month and, and you know, like we, we are where we are and, and, and that's okay. But over the last couple of years, especially, like we started noticing the data on it and, and more and more businesses, small and large, uh, coming to us and, and coming to chambers across Ontario, uh, complaining about how their their um bills were increasing at an exponential rate, uh, especially for small businesses. They were saying that we're not able to pay ourselves a living wage. Uh, we're almost going under. And it, it was simply because of something we don't even notice because, you know, we wake up, electricity is all around us. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's almost no community in Ontario where you won't find electricity, especially in the urban areas like Hamilton. So so it was it was assumed to be just, just another utility, but uh, we're at a point where everyone's projecting an exponential increase um, continued increase in electricity prices and businesses are just fed up with it uh, and they don't see a way out and and you know subject matter experts and chambers of commerce when we look at the whole system uh, we don't see a small term fix we, we realize that this is a long term fundamental problem and just advocating the government uh, for small fixes and small breaks for businesses here and there that's not going to change the issue so mm-hmm. so now we're proposing uh, in the document released yesterday the, uh, a submission to the province's long term energy plan that the province needs to fundamentally rethink the principles by which it has tried to govern. Uh, and it's not just the Liberal government, it's it's the PCs before them, NDP before them. They've all made decisions on, on this file. They've all passed the buck. That have led us to where we are today. And, and this is not just about today, but because we are locked into a lot of these conditions for the next 20, 30 years. And, and, that, and that's obviously the issue that you're getting from businesses, I'm guessing, is because they don't know how to plan for this moving forward because there just seems to be no end in sight in the, in the increases. 
taxes. So how do they plan for something like that? Exactly. And I think I think that's one of our key principles. And it's a pretty odd principle to ask for. It's just transparency. Um, like while like there's uh, issues and recommendations about the price itself and, and uh, affordability and, and predictability, like the biggest one is that people simply do not understand what's happening and why their bill is the way it is. Like for the longest time, um, people did not understand what debt retirement charge was and, and they had to open their history books into 1999 to realize how we ended up there. They don't realize what global adjustment global is. Adjustments and and just yeah. last week, um, the OE, uh, Ontario Energy Board refused uh, a call by the Auditor General of Ontario to uh, release details on, on, on what's happening there. But I think... They said it would be too confusing. Do you think it would be too... How is more information bad for people? Exactly. I, th- I think it's it's about like um, respecting... Uh, a very unique kind of consumer here. Um, and, and I think the, the way, uh, what I mean by that is that in, in many other industries, like if you're wanting uh, a better road and you just go ask for it and the government builds it and comes out of the tax base. Um, but in this case, no matter what happens to uh, the utility, the consumers pay for it. So it's the best way to explain it. And, and that really upsets businesses because a lot of them have this assumption, when I, well, at least when we talk to them, that we just don't have enough you know, power plants and maybe we need to you know, build more wind plants and mm-hmm. it'll solve our problems. But the issue in Ontario is actually the complete opposite. Uh, and a lot of people don't know that in that we actually have a gap between supply and demand of negative 14%. Where we're actually producing at minimum 14% more. And you have hydroelectric plants that are just letting water go through them because of global adjustment. And the, what global adjustment means, and, and it's a very complex topic, but in simple terms is uh, we're paying um, – tax uh, businesses and consumers in in, uh, New York, in in Quebec, in in, in other provinces to buy excess electricity from us. And we're on the hook for that. Add less money than it's costing for the producer. Exactly. It's actually at a negative money. And and, and every month there's at least uh, 200 plus uh, energy production hours um, on average where we're producing negative energy, where we're producing energy that we actually are producing just to sell. Um, and, and, and this is a very unique kind of consumer where you, you're paying for what you're consuming and then you're paying for what the government is selling because of the contracts they got into to other people uh, and you're on the hook for that. And then you, the, the government turns around at you and says, well, actually, you, you're not really supposed to know why that's happening or what that's going to look like 5, 10, 15 years they, from now. Plus, they get penalized for conserving, for using exactly. less. It just exactly. doesn't make sense. Exactly. So, so you know, the, the whole conservation thing, like businesses are trying to do it and they're, they're retrofitting, uh, you know, their, uh, their facilities and then they're, they're trying to use, uh, you know, electricity in off-peak hours. But... At the bottom line, that's actually, if you think about it, making the pl- problem exponentially worse for the problem. It's like there's someone sitting, uh, you know, in the in the hydro board saying, "Well, that's actually doesn't make sense. Where am I going to sell this electricity? <laughs> because because even the other states, like they're saying, you know, there's only so much we can take, um, and if you want to dump more electricity on us, um, we're going to pay you less and less." Uh, the other chambers feel the same way about this. This isn't just exclusive. Absolutely, to like w- w- I'd even say, like we've been one of the, <laughs> you know, uh, big calmer yeah. uh, chambers. We're more concerned about you know ideas and policies. Like the uh, other chambers, like you know, they're part of the rallies that are being held uh, in different communities. Even in Hamilton, uh, we've seen uh, city hall uh, with you know people with placards yeah. uh, every other day. Um, we haven't gone to that level yet, but I think we're we're engaged in very active dialogue with um, elected officials and into the Ontario Chamber Network that this needs to change immediately. And one of the other areas for why there's an urgency is that the Chamber Network keeps sharing these Donald Trump articles where he's, where he's saying, you know, I'm going to fire up all the coal plants again uh, and and, and yeah. here's my plan for energy. And, he, and the secretary mm-hmm. appointed um, uh, Rick Perry, I believe. Like, I, I think if you look back at their views on, on how they perceive, uh, you know, electricity generation, um, Ontario is, is, you know, almost like a dinosaur here. And, it, and that change in, in yeah. less than two months. Uh, so what can biz do? And I still find it fascinating that, number one, the chamber has, or all the chambers, or, or a great many of them have decided to, 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 to advocate for this sort of thing. But you've also come up with a plan, which just, you know, it's amazing me to no end that now people are coming up with suggestions and giving the government ideas on how to run their own electricity system. Uh, how did you come up with this plan? Is it something out of your chamber? Is it all of the chambers? Where did this idea it, it, come it's from? It's something um, out of a collaboration of all the chambers. Like This is one of those issues where almost every chamber is very engaged, and mm-hmm. they're, and they're uh, talking to their local businesses, getting ideas from them. A lot of our businesses, as, as, as you know, like 
they are global conglomerates like ArcelorMittal, DeFasco, yeah. and, and and Maple Foods, and then they do they do business in other jurisdictions, and and they know how things are run there. Uh, and we're learning from them, but the Ontario Chamber as well, uh, located where they are, like they 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 have been engaged in this exercise uh, for the development of this report for at least three or four years, and they've been engaging the best academics, uh, global um, you know think tanks, uh, and they've gone to uh, the, the recommendations they've released today, and 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 you know. So, so, you might think it's coming too late in the game, but it is because they wanted to be very thorough with with what they're doing mm-hmm. here. Because it, it's not an easy topic, no, uh, it's not an easy fix. Uh, so we wanted to be uh, very thorough with what we're doing here. So explain in in layman's terms what the concept is here. So so we have a number of recommendations. I, I think they're based on principles. So so we're saying uh, the cost needs to be transparent. It needs to also be agnostic to where the source is. Uh, so an example of that is um, the province is very interested in refurbishing the Darlington uh, and the other nuclear plant, and that's um, a huge $16 billion investment, and that's going to increase uh, uh, the electricity prices because people are going to have to pay for the debt. Sure. But what we're seeing is natural gas, uh, in comparison, is a lot cheaper option. Uh, we shouldn't discard that. Um, if we're looking into uh, solar and wind, we should look at the viability of it today and tomorrow um, and, and look at all the alternatives and, and then have an agnostic principle to what the next um, system's going to look like. And we're not saying go back to coal because I think no. I think getting away from coal has been good for Ontario in, in many other ways, like how we don't have any smog days anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there are some benefits of moving away from some. But some of the other things like natural gas, when they're, you know, uh, looked at as renewable energy and we shouldn't invest in that, sometimes that's a good option because we're talking about business bottom line here. Uh, I think our main idea, though, is to completely fundamentally shift the way contracts are uh, awarded for uh, electricity generation. So we have a a concept called... um, uh, where we what, what we're saying is like we need to adopt an auction clearinghouse um, where each producer um, will submit their bid for how much supply they can offer the province um, and then and they will all undercut each other and they will all bid for the bottom of the barrel price mm-hmm. um, and then that way what will happen is that it wouldn't matter anymore who what kind of production is happening? What will matter is the is that you're getting to the the least uh, expensive price. Right. So it could be wind, it could be solar, it could be hydro, it could be uh, nuclear. Well, you know it's not going to be wind and solar. So not yet. What about the feedback and in response from that group yeah. when they say when hey this is not what the plan is here. The plan is to get rid of these fossil fuels. I I think so. So, so that that adds a spanner into the whole thing. Uh, but I think what we need, really need to look at is um, that things like natural gas, like they are still very clean. low, uh, yeah. you know, there's still clean energy. Mm-hmm. And, and there's many countries, even in Europe, which is seen as the uh, pillar for uh, climate change uh, conservation, like they're using natural gas as yeah. well, right? Uh, so I think what we're seeing is that there's other ways to address um, the electricity problem. You don't always have to address it from the supply side. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. If you can address it through um, incentivizing uh, conservation programs at businesses and, and you can reroute some of that money you're going to save and, and put it into, uh, you know, Tesla's coming out with those uh, solar battery mm-hmm. uh, programs. Uh, if you start investing in a lot of those, and actually some of those businesses are in Hamilton, they're coming out of McMaster. If you start investing in alternative technologies, uh, that are going to increase and improve uh, the consumer end of things, you can still get to the end goal, which is uh, to be, you know, um, uh, produce less carbon. So in the end, this is too much too fast. I mean, that's the general complaint. Exactly. And I, I think and, the whole... And you're certainly not the first person to say that. Yeah. And, and the climate change plan, I think I think that also should give the government pause. Like, you can't just throw that spanner into what, the, the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to take a step back and say, if, if these are our end goals, um, then how else can we get there? You talked about how a lot of the companies are, are global companies, do businesses in other provinces, other countries, other states, what have you. Uh, what are we doing wrong? Why didn't we see this? Why can't we take the best of all of these worlds and, and come up with a solution? Uh, why didn't we see this coming? And I, I guess perhaps that's a political question. But Yeah, it, it is a political question. I, I, I think, to be fair, like w- w- one of the goals that Ontario really had was to uh, move away from coal. And, and, and mm-hmm. that was a laudable goal. But I think the question is at what cost, mm-hmm. right? And, and a lot of the things where you just have to, like, 
have an idea, do some research, and you all, you put it out there and see what happens. Like you can't mm-hmm. really predict uh, yeah. user behavior. So when they added the smart meters, that cost them uh, over two billion dollars. But the reports have shown that they've only decreased uh, electricity, you know, consumption by z- improved it by zero point zero seven percent. And 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 those are not significantly poorer outcomes than yeah. what was predicted. Uh, I think the other thing is just the way it is managed on the government side. It is prone to in- incredible amounts of cost overrun. So we've all heard stories about the nuclear plants and how every single project has gone o- overboard, um, which is which is fine, and it happens with public-private partnerships and infrastructure and all these things. But but what we're seeing is that while that happens, there's no accountability because the businesses are still going to cover yeah. not only their own cost of uh, electricity, but they're also going to cover all the mistakes that were made. So, so I think from an accountability perspective, no matter who's in government, unless things fundamentally change, um, they have zero accountability there because because they're not paying for it. A response from your suggestions, response from the government, what, ha- have you talked to them regarding all of this? What are their thoughts? I think, uh, so this is our major submission to the long-term energy plan that they're uh, creating in 2017. So we'll hear a more comprehensive response, uh, you know, a, a month mm-hmm. or so from now or, or, or later. Uh, but I think initially uh, what they've said is, um, you know, we're, we're doing our best and we have all these plans and programs, but I, th- I think the suggestions and the feedback has been that they believe that, you know, um, despite what's happening, uh, we still have a responsibility as Ontario, West Canada, uh, to go a certain way in, in terms of electricity generation, in terms of our climate change targets. Uh, so I think that climate change conversation really gets into the electricity conversation and it really muddies the waters. Uh, but in the past, I think to the cr- for credit to the government, they have been very responsive uh, in some cases in responding to what the Ontario Chamber has been advocating for. So the um, International Electricity Standards Organization, uh, you know, they've, they've improved their accountability based on Ontario Chamber recommendations. And uh, I- they've also created a, a program uh, to help uh, businesses over one megawatt. So some of the mid to large producers with uh, special energy conservation programs. And those were things that the Ontario Chamber and its network advocated for. And we've gotten those in the past. So, so they have made some movements, but I think what we're recommending here is a is a very significant it's a whole change. paradigm change, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we've heard so much about how this affects those living on the margins, uh, how it's created energy poverty. With the story last week about 1,400 families that have been disconnected are now being reconnected uh, for the winter. And, and it seems that and rightly so that, that you know, we've uh, focused on those near the margins and how it's affected them because it seems to make the greatest uh, or have the greatest effect on them. That being said, it's it affects everybody. And sometimes we forget business, small business, medium business. These guys are taking a hit as well and are also part of the discussion. So is it really about coming up with a program for those who are close to the margins? Is it about coming up with a program that just keeps you guys happy and, and business happy? Or do you think there is actual support for a change that, that, you're, that you're talking about? Do you think they've, that they're willing to have those discussions? Because those are beyond rebates, as you said. We hope so. As, as I mentioned earlier, um, we, we could ask for small fixes. And in our report, we do have a number of recommendations for those small, quick fixes that will really help the small and medium and, and large businesses. And um, and the industrial conservation programs is a great example. Uh, but like we just feel that it's it's not responsible ultimately for the for our chamber to just advocate for small you know one year mm-hmm. two year three year fixes uh, when you know a lot of these it's things are issue. locked in and, yeah. and and we really have to put our backs behind a fundamental paradigm shift otherwise we're going to end up having the same conversation five years from now. Uh, do you think we will be having the same conversation five years from now, or do you think we will see a paradigm shift on how we do business and how we sell electricity? It will be interesting. I, I think um, what we're really curious... It's not going uh, away, is no, it? No, it's not. It's absolutely not. I think I think a lot of things will not improve, uh, but the government does have the ability to um, impact things uh, only if it's willing to fundamentally shift 
the way it, it does business, the way it manages and thinks about the electricity uh, portfolio. Uh, I, th- I think what, what will really drive a lot of this discussion um, in, in terms of climate change, in terms of electricity, uh, is what happens in the United States. Like yeah. They're one of our biggest trading partners, um, and it's not just about local consumers. It's also about businesses exporting and importing mm. uh uh, from uh, the United States, and if if they're going to go ahead with what they're planning on going ahead with, what they've hinted uh, is, is a very fundamentally different way of doing things. I think Canada really will have to, will be forced to. They don't have a choice. They don't have a choice. They will yeah. be forced to rethink the competitiveness of our economy. Um, and then uh, you know, under the Obama government, like I think we were mostly aligned in mm-hmm. terms of our uh, commitment to uh, international targets, in terms of our commitment to where we wanted to move our electricity generation, and and both countries were very interested in uh, from the public and private sector into renewable energy. Uh, But now we're we're at a interesting crossroads where the signals we're getting are, are very, very different. And I think a lot of you know policy thinkers, a lot of politicians, like they still haven't wrapped their head around how do we think in a different way? Because we've grown up in a system where wherever we were taught at school and wherever wherever we saw happen with the government, more or less remained the same. Like you, the, the entire yeah. economy, the entire country was moving in a certain direction and, and, and parties would change and they would come in with slightly different ideas. But ultimately, they were all like, you know, part yeah. of the same bucket. But we have a very different bucket uh, side of the border. And, 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 and that's that's really makes us think about how we prioritize different things. Husefa Saeed has been with us, policy and research analyst with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, who, of course, are hearing about high electricity prices uh, from their people as well and have actually put a plan to paper and are going to actually forward this uh, to government, and uh, hopefully it can be a part of the solution. Uh, Husefa, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Great Thank work. Thank you for having us. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Facebook announced yesterday it's going to be combating fake news with the help of other users and fact checkers. Readers will be able to flag stories which will then be sent to outside fact-checking organizations. To talk more about all of this, Alyssa Freeman is with us, Principal Alyssa PR Communications. Uh, You can read her her stuff in Huffington Post, Canada.com, PR Daily. And with us now, Alyssa, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine. How are you, Scott? Did we... I'm doing very well, and thank you for taking the time to join us, as always. Mm -hmm. Uh, 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 I'm not even going to ask you whether you think um, uh, the Russians hacked uh, certain servers of the Republicans and the Democrats uh, in the United States, because I believe we already have an agreement on that. Do we not? Although Although Donald Trump... Uh, seems to be a little cloudy on the issue. He's acknowledging the hacks when it comes to Hillary getting uh, questions from a debate, but he doesn't seem to, well, at least his supporters have said that this is all fake and never happened. You know what? Donald Trump is the master. It's like he's the master of disguise or the master of the double talk. So he can take any story, no matter how much truth there is behind it, and then put his own spin on it. But the brilliant way in which he does that is that the spin is very simplistic and, and easy to understand. So if you actually read and delve into what the CIA found, it, it, it's pretty detailed. Now, if you hear one thing that says, well, I, I don't know about the Russians, but I do know that you know Hillary was doing some hacking, well, that's all that his supporters need to hear. <laughs> he doesn't need to get into details. He puts out really simplistic messages that hit his home base, and they take that as gospel. And unfortunately, you know, when you think about the next four years or eight years, as he has claimed that he'll be doing this, it's going to be an interesting uh, one-way flow of very sanitized information. Do you think why he doesn't have to do this? I mean, he really doesn't. So why is he doing this? Why is he creating? It's distraction. It's a three-ring circus, Scott. It's distraction. So you get some very conclusive evidence from the CIA that the Russians uh, hacking aided and abetted Donald Trump's efforts to win the presidency. So what do you do? Well, you can't really, you can refute it by saying, no, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, and that only takes you so far. So then what you do instead is create a distraction, another narrative that takes everybody's eye off the press. Like a a Kanye West. Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, there's Kanye, and then maybe there's somebody else he's considering for another post, and then maybe there's, 
you know, oh, you want to know something? Speaking of hacking, I'm going to have a meeting with all with everybody who's important in the tech industry. I'm going to have Sheryl Sandberg. I'm going to have so-and-so. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So he's the president-elect. Whether you voted for him or not, when he calls you and says, I want to have a meeting with you, they're going to show up. Yeah, yeah, just because so of the business creating, card. It's brilliant. I mean, there isn't a political party that doesn't do this. And, you know, the liberals, the Kathleen Wynne's liberals do this all the time. So, you know, don't look over here at the bad news. Look over here, over here at the good news and or at the other news. And that other news has to be really, really easy to understand and digest. What will this do for the Trump-Putin bromance? Well, it's interesting because, you know, Trump is being very cagey about the whole thing and, and, and certainly not claiming to any guilt. But, you know, once you're in the Oval Office, you are then subject to the, the bureaucrats who actually run the government. And that's where Donald Trump is going to run into an issue. You know, you hear about um, people who take CEO jobs and then they have to work with a board that they didn't appoint. So they have no choice. They don't necessarily have any friends on the board. They don't have a lot of sway with the board. But the board isn't going away because the board provides oversight. In this case of the hacking, you know, the the Republicans have really broken rank in many cases with Trump by saying, no, 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 this is treason. This goes beyond party lines. We have to investigate this. So, you know, based on that, based on, like, getting caught up in bureaucraties, that could be a real undoing. And many people have predicted that he's not going to last the year, and some people like Michael Moore predicted he's not going to make it to inauguration. How can he possibly possibly move forward on this? Um, you know, at, after the election, he boasted about having control of everything, the House, the Senate, what have you. Well, I mean, this is coming apart before he's even got through the door of the White House. If I mean, he's never been in government before, nor really worked with the inner workings of government. It is a web of bureaucrats, departments, uh, legalese, laws, bylaws, uh, you know, certain constitutional rights that you really need to do things by the book. And right now he's not doing things by the book that he's getting away with. For example, no uh, daily press briefings um, to tell the people through the press about what his uh, traditional government is up to. No taking daily briefings because, well, I heard it once. Do I really need to hear it again? You know, I was watching... um, David Gergen on CNN, and, you know, this is an old-time political uh, guy, and Mm -hmm. he says, you can't wing this stuff. (laughs) You know, you get into some sort of geopolitical uh, issue, and you're going to look where? You're not going to look to Ivanka. Well, you're you know, not going to look to your kids. Yeah, thing one. Going to look to thing one. Going to look to thing one and thing two. Well, um, what, uh, yeah. I shouldn't be that. That's not fair. Well, uh, daily press briefings. Uh, in regard to that, I, I mean, just this whole issue with the Russian hacking is that not the the primary reason why you why you should be attending these briefings? I mean, you know, he can sit back and say, well, he's letting Pence do this and that, 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 that. But here's an issue that's fallen in his lap before the guy's even become president, and he's not attending the briefings. I have a feeling this might have been covered in the briefings. Well, you think? And really, shouldn't he know the the ins and outs of what this actually means and what it means for him? You know, listen, the Republicans would be so happy that if Trump said, you know what, that was fun, I don't want to do it, bye, the Republicans would be more than happy to have Pence run the country. And for me, yeah, yeah. I think that's even an even scarier proposition than having Trump run the country. Yeah, good point. Uh, can one man change all of this? Can one man literally, like, I mean, he's changed the press corps. I mean, obviously, he's tweeting, he's going on YouTube, he's not, hasn't held a press conference in, since uh, I don't know when. Uh, can he can he do all of this? Well, you can't run the country and worry about what Alec Baldwin is saying about you at Saturday Night Live. You know, he has shown that his <laughs> are you saying are you saying his eye may not be on what's going well, on here? No, I mean, you know, if you're worried about what people are saying about you, and, and you know, this whole notion of his thin skin played as a very heavy narrative um, in the campaign, although it certainly. 
you know, we all knew about it, but it wasn't enough to sway people to not to vote for him. And now here you have a guy who's a president-elect, and all he wants to do is take people on on Twitter. So, I mean, if he does make it through to inauguration, uh, you know, bureaucrats, you know, this is this will all stop. I mean, it will have to stop, and he will be muzzled. There, I, I would be so shocked if the party faithful let him to continue to act like this. But think about it. Can you imagine if Justin Trudeau or any other head of state was sitting there tweeting to 16-year-old boys and, and calling out uh, college-age women and, and tweeting you know, against a, an actor on a popular TV show? What? I mean, shouldn't your eye be on another ball? You would think, wouldn't you? Um, let's get let let's get uh, to Facebook and yeah. fake news. Uh, is it worth even trying to combat this? And by that I mean, as soon as you do, people will automatically re. It's like the gun law. As soon as you say you're going to bring in gun controls, uh, you know the sale of guns go through the roof. Isn't it the same with this? Well, you know what? First of all, let's step back a bit and talk about what this means from a PR perspective. You know, there's an optic issue here. And Facebook got into it themselves. I mean, like when you get into crisis communications, there's two ways that it happens. From external uh, forces or most often you do it to yourself. So when Facebook got into the news trending, they saw themselves as a purveyor of information, not just social information about you and me and your nice Christmas tree that you posted up on your Facebook page, but also, it. well, if we can do that, we can also tell people what news to pay attention to. So they started by putting in popular um, popular news items. And, you know, I would sort of click on them and think, well, what is that about? And some of it would be the most ridiculous, like guess who's dating or some, you know, obscure actress's mm-hmm. birthday. And then to sort of put a filter on that, they decided to say instead of just trending, they, you know, would put a little bit more information to help you make an informed choice. So now that they're in the information sharing business that is beyond, you know, your birthday party, there's a certain sense of responsibility that goes with that. And if you are sharing what is deemed to be fake news, you have to put, any company would have to do this, is that they would have to create some optics or a plan of action that would show your audience, and this is a billion, you know, this is a around the world, worldwide audience, that you are actually taking this issue very seriously. And the way they're doing that is that, first of all, they're taking a sense of some responsibility for saying, okay, we're going to do something about this because we know that we're part of the problem. However, they don't put the problem on their uh, completely on their own shoulders, which is a really, really smart move. Instead, what they're going to do is partner with, you know, so-called, and mm. from what I can understand, reliable fact-checking organizations. I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen, Alyssa. I could see this happening yeah. coming like a year ago because like sooner or later they have to join forces do they not it's a credibility issue well it is and you know this is in, in filtering news is an algorithm they never anticipated they would have to use or put into place and it's too big of a job for them to do by themselves and quite frankly you need to sort of spread the blame a little bit as opposed to put it all on your own shoulders so if facebook said we're going to take this on and we're going to figure it out well if they don't figure it out they could take a huge reputational hit as a result However, by partnering with people like organizations like Snopes or FactCheck.org or ABC News and PolitiFact, you know, organizations that are known for their deep and accurate fact-checking, they're, kind of, they're, they're, they're spreading the love, so to speak, where they're relying on, you know, sources that know what they're doing, have the algorithms, and can help, make, help people make an informed decision. The only problem with that, Scott, is that, you know, fact-checking – is a tedious business. I was just about to say... We're talking about one debate while you're watching it. We're talking about a slew of stories that um, are creating some sort of buzz. Well, it's like no one trusts the fact checkers. You know... I mean, I've I've got a tweet, or I've got a Facebook post here, the CIA is fake news. I mean, how do do you combat that? Okay, well, you know... Maybe, <laughs> but uh, if you don't trust the CIA, and and maybe trust is too strong a word, but if you if you're not behind these sorts of organizations, who's protecting you? Well, exactly, and I think that the CIA puts out information that they want the the public to have. 
Um, Absolutely. And there's plenty of information that they don't want the public to have. So when you're talking about the CIA is fake news, first of all, the CIA is not a purveyor of news and a story. They're a central intelligence agency. However, maybe what they're saying is, is that the CIA is fake news in that the report re-Russian hacking is fake. Yeah. And that's the line we're supposed to draw. So I'm not sure who put up that Facebook post, but it, it is 100% ridiculous. Uh, sorry, go ahead. And the other thing that I think is interesting what they're going to do is this. They're going to give each story now a rating. And here's the interesting thing. When you hover over on your Facebook page and you see the news column, you go, oh, geez, what's in the news? You can hover over the boldface title and see if you want to read more. Mm-hmm. You may click on it. You may not. You may just look at the headline, but you may not open the article. Ratings will now be based on whether or not, and I think this is kind of really, really interesting, on whether or not you have opened the article to read it. Now, you can open it and say, okay, I read it and five seconds later. So I don't know if they have like a, a length of time mm-hmm. uh, rating based on that too. But I think it's interesting to think that, okay, if you didn't even bother to click on it, even for a modicum, like a, a small amount of time, then this story is going to get a le- uh, lower rating. Therefore, it will have less credibility. The key in all of this is speed. You know, it used to be you'd wait for the paper the next day to see the news. Or you heard about something on TV, and then you wait for the paper to retell the story. Now, uh, you know, uh, news happens at the speed of light. Mm-hmm. So you know, there might be a story, oh, we should jump on this. Oh, no, 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 now something supersedes that, and it becomes much more important. So this is a huge black hole, uh, really, that Facebook has opened by starting this whole trending topic. And maybe they didn't think this through. You know, you think that, of course, Facebook would should be able to think this through. But, you know, the largest of companies make, you know, strategic errors in business judgment with respect to this. And I would have to say that this is something they never anticipated they'd have to get into. Have you noticed when uh, looking on Facebook that more people are, and this is totally off topic, more people are posting with a bolder font and a, a bolder face print than used you know to. What? It's There's almost like they're yelling going at on with that. So if you, uh, it's like they're yelling post, at me, which is I don't know, ten to fifteen words, it automatically comes up as a large font. I noticed that automatically. It, yep, and as soon as you exceed that number of words and/or characters, it goes back to the regular font and typeface. I don't know what that's all about. I mean, maybe it's encouraging people not to write big, long posts and just sort of Twitterize their Facebook posts. Wow. But I tend to think that at Facebook, you are spending more time. You're not scrolling through it as fast as you would uh, a medium like Twitter. Is that not manipulating the message, though? Well, it's manipulating your eyeballs and where they are anchored. Yeah. 100%. So, and then how does that affect advertising on Facebook? Absolutely. Taking away eyeballs from the advertising. So, I don't know. That, that, that's an interesting algorithm they've thrown in there, and I am... I'd like to know the reason why. why they've done it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one other quick thing I wanted to touch on with you. Uh, there was a report out that says that uh, Canadians aren't as generous as they used to be, that uh, the amount we donate to charities is on the decline. Why do you think that is? Do you think that has more to do with the economy and where we are uh, post-recession, or do you think that it's a case of saturation and we're just tapped out? I think it's a combination of things. I think food is very expensive. I mean, have you gone grocery shopping lately, Scott? You know, you get 10 things, you look yeah. at the bill, and you think, oh, I hardly bought anything. Yeah. So I think that people just have a lot more, a lot less, I should say, discretionary income. So when you want to give to charity, yeah, you might give, but you're not going to give in the same way that you've done before. And sometimes there's a lot of over-asking. So there are people who do a lot of events, and you tend to hear from the same people all the time, um, you know, how many people are going to do one watt for cancer? How many people are going to do this? How many people are going to do the right for heart? How many requests are you going to get, and how many are you going to start to ignore? We'll even look at, the, you know, the hospitals that now have these humongous prize lists and cars and boats and, uh, you know, houses and cottages. I mean, and again, I've talked to these people about this, and it's all about competing for the old mighty char- charity, uh, charity dollar, and you just got to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, a lottery, um, you know, I used to work for the Heart and Stroke Foundation. I will tell you that a lottery is the fastest way to make a tremendous amount of money in a very short period of time. Yeah. You have to make a, you do make a big investment. You do recoup that. However, um, you can, I don't know what the numbers are now, 
But you can make a quick 8 to $10 million in, in and out in eight weeks, and that's fast, and that's a lot of money, and that's why they do it. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, Principal Alyssa PR Communications. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. We'll chat again soon. Okay, Scott. Have a great weekend. Bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.